Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This morning we'll be in Galatians 5 and 6. So I said last week that I think um, verse 26 of chapter 5 belongs in chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to preach accordingly. And I think that'll make sense to you. So it's like it's mostly chapter 6, but... It's a little bit of chapter five too. Before I get started, let me pray. Father, we love you. Um, <clears throat> and we just, we've just finished singing things that are utterly not true of us. Um, we don't go wherever you lead. Um, and, and we may commit in song all that we have to you, but the reality of our lives is, uh, it's a pretty significant departure from what we desire and what we've just sang. So um, thank you for mercy and grace and patience and love toward us and, and that constant supply that flows from your throne to our hearts that um, while we fail to live up to these commitments that we make, um, nonetheless, you are, you are pleased with the widow's might and faith the size of a mustard seed. So grant to us over these next few minutes um, the ability to pay attention to your word and to take something from this um, that will actually inspire and encourage us to live up to that high calling. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Last week... Um, we, we covered one more element of these characteristics, for lack of a better word, of salvation um, that relate to practical sanctification. So through five chapters of Galatians, we've seen pretty clearly that th th this relationship piece and the proximity piece of salvation, and specifically as we've started looking at practical sanctification, are essential. What I did brilliantly uh, back in February is I started with the fact that sin creates separation between us and God and that it stands to reason, therefore, that the gospel design is to bridge that gap and bring us into relationship with our creator by undoing what sin does. So... We've seen how regeneration, justification, adoption, and sanctification correspond to the design and the goal of relationship. By regeneration, by bringing us to life, <laughs> I wish I had a great story to tell to recapture everybody's attention because the minute you say a word that ends in T-I-O-N from a pulpit, everybody's thinking about work tomorrow, right? <laughs> Bear with me, I promise. It, I won't make this as excruciating as I could. Regeneration is where God brings us to life. This is where you are Lazarus in the tomb. You're a dead sinner. You have no means to respond to God or be in relationship with God because you're not even drawing breath, spiritually speaking. And what God does in mercy is through the Holy Spirit, he breathes life into the dead sinner. By doing that, he makes us cognizant of his existence, 
our inferior nature, his perfect nature, and we are now aware that there is a God with whom we have to do business and we are out of relationship with him. You cannot be in relationship with someone you do not know. Right? We, we've lost sight of this fact in our culture because uh, of Facebook. And I think I've probably used the illustration here before that you can go on Facebook and like virtually know somebody by what their relationship status is, who their friends are, what kinds of things they post. You can figure out when their birthday is, when their anniversary is, what they're interested in, all sorts of things about somebody, but you're not in relationship with them. You don't have communion with that person. You also will not be in relationship with someone whom you do not hold in high regard. It's a natural inclination of the human heart to avoid people that we despise, right? So it's not enough for the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. That makes us aware of God. And it even makes us fearful of him, but it doesn't put us in relationship with him. So then we enter the justification piece. This is where God declares that the sinner, because of the work of Jesus Christ, is righteous. That deals with the guilt aspect of our disharmony with God. You cannot be in a healthy relationship with someone to whom you only relate in terms of guilt. You know what we call that? In modern human psychological terms, we call that a codependent relationship where someone is just able to hold something over you all the time. Well, God in mercy deals himself with that which he has to hold over us and declares us righteous. By adopting us, by bringing us into the family fold, God tends our fear and shame. You cannot be in relationship with someone who has only forgiven you your trespasses, but makes no overtures of fellowship. So surely you've had the experience before where you're in relationship with somebody and you're going along and then you screw up. And now there's a break in the relationship, which can be fixed or tended by an apology being given. And so you do that and they accept the apology, but things never seem quite the same afterwards. Maybe what you did was just that terrible, worse than anything they ever did to God, right? So they don't have to relate with you anymore. The difficulty and the problem here is that if there are no overtures of fellowship from the person with whom you're trying to be in relationship, you cannot be in relationship with them. It doesn't matter how bad you want it. If they don't want it, it's not happening. So God adopts us because there is no stronger bond than the familial bond, right? We become sons and daughters. This deals with our fear and our shame. And then by sanctifying us, by setting us apart from our former lives, God moves us spiritually to desire those things which he desires. So the way that I've said this is a Christian is someone who possesses two desires. We possess our own, many of which need to be changed, right? They're not good desires, but we possess our own desires. And we also simultaneously possess the desires of the spirit who dwells within us. 
All of those T-I-O-N words, regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, carry with them implications of relationship and proximity. Relationship and proximity. God desires to be in relationship with his people. Amen? Amen. God desires to be in close relationship with his people. You don't go to these lengths if you're God unless you actually want to interact with that sinner. So what did he do? Well, he died in our stead to redeem us. And I think I said two weeks ago, Jesus did not come and live and suffer and die so that God would have one more reason to despise you. He came and did that so that he could redeem you. And then last week, we added to these two pieces, relationship and proximity, we added a third piece, which may be unnecessary, but I think it's worth emphasizing. And the third piece is possession, because in 24, 524, Paul says those who, what's that word? All together now. That was not together. One, two, three, belong. Very good. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we are sons and daughters by adoption. We belong to him. Twice in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes these words. You, listen, you, some of you aren't listening. You, now I know you're listening. You were bought with a price. You were bought with with a price. Two times he says that. God bought you with a price. Now, okay. I don't want to lose everybody under the age of 40 with what I'm about to say. But there's a good chance that's going to happen because when you start talking about the culture, young people feel like they're being persecuted. I'm not persecuting young people, all right? Our culture is so addicted to the pursuit of autonomy. Mm, Hang on. Autonomy (laughs) is the right or condition of self-government. Our culture is so addicted to the pursuit of autonomy that we are expected, we are all expected to pretend we aren't sure what the differences between a man and a woman are. Think about this with me. We've thrown natural law out the window in favor of the pursuit of autonomy. I get to be whatever I say I am. Men can get pregnant too. We are hearing this in our culture. Now, I'm not per- persecuting you guys, all right? I'm, I'm simply illustrating this point. If we're going to throw the laws of nature overboard, which for the last 2,000 years anyway, we've all been in agreement, that's a man and that's a woman. If we're willing to throw those laws overboard, what will we be constrained by? There is nothing. There's nothing to constrain us if we're not willing to at least yield to the laws of nature. 
So the Bible takes this fact for granted. If you're a Christian, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to someone else. But our culture says, no, you have personal freedom and autonomy. And then I stand up and I say, you've been bought with a price. It says so in the word of God. We are sons and daughters. We are possessions of Jesus Christ. Everything in you that's impacted and affected by the culture around you says, I don't like that. Because of necessity, the consequence of belonging to somebody else, of having been bought with a price, is you must act like it. You cannot just do whatever you want and expect there to be no consequences. You belong to someone else, act like it. Does sanctification require effort on our part? Does sanctification require effort on our part? One, two, three. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Mother. Uh, It requires effort on our part to say no to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil. Right? John and Katie took a trip to Vegas a couple weeks ago. Uh, And it reminded me of a very funny encounter that I had at work a couple of months ago. There's a a lady, black lady, gospel singer, you know, Christian that works in customer service. And so I'd had some reason to interact with her early on. Um, And then a lot of people work from home, so you don't see each other every week. So you don't know what everybody's been up to, but there was an all hands meeting and we're all up in the cafeteria hanging out together. And I overhear her say, don't tell James where I was. (laughs) And I look at her and I go, where were you? (laughs) And she goes, and I said, were you in sin city? And she said, yes. And I said, but you were just sharing the light of Jesus, right? She said, that's right. (laughs) It does require effort. And going to Vegas is not the antithesis of uh, practical sanctification. Well, it's right next to it. It's the neighbor, yeah. It seems to me... That what Paul is trying to tell us is different than avoid all of the icky things in the world lest you get some on you. I don't think that's practical sanctification. I think what he's saying is there is an immeasurable difference between being in bondage to the law, which means limiting yourself with its constraints and moving yourself with its directives, which is, by the way, that's how the vast majority of the church looks at Christian morality. It's like, it's, it's moralistic deism. It's do these things and God will like you. There's a huge difference between that and saying, yes, sanctification requires effort, but understand what effort God is gently, lovingly, faithfully requiring of you is this grace-driven effort. It's not putting the Salise belt on your thigh and flogging yourself and pouring salt in your eyeballs. It's embracing by faith the relationship and maintaining by faith 
proximity that flows from God's possession of you. So, the fruit of the Spirit comes from the root of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. And we saw in John 15 that Jesus is the true vine. I love this awkward place where we have church. How will you make the fruit of the true vine? It's not deeds of the Spirit. It was fruit of the Spirit, right? So how do you produce fruit from that vine, from Christ? Well, he says, abide in me. Relationship, proximity, possession. I've got to be in Christ, right? And then I'll yield the fruits of being a part of the root of the Spirit. What I said last week is that means, I think, really simply, you must drag your flesh kicking and screaming into the presence of Jesus Christ. While everything in you, including your own conscience, is saying, God wants nothing to do with you. You're too disgusting. You got to go into the presence of Christ with all of your baggage and all of your leftover remnants of sin and be in relationship with him. And there you will see as your passions and desires are trailing behind the flesh, as you're dragging it into the presence of Christ, you will see the knife in the hand of the vine dresser. And you will be pruned and it will hurt and you will cry and life is hard. But this is practical sanctification. That's the effort. So when you come to verse 26 of chapter 5, which I think belongs with chapter 6, and see the first five verses of chapter 6, every directive that we find in these six verses is designed to drive us to the throne of grace. Because look, you're not going to do an honest assessment of yourself and go, man, I am nailing it. (laughs) If you do an honest assessment of yourself, you're going to find that you need Jesus to cleanse and restore you. So verse 26, chapter 5, let us not become conceited. How we doing, everybody? (laughs) Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness or her, right? Keep watch on yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. If you're a note taker, I'm going to try to remember to do this going forward. I'll probably forget, but here's the three points. As is typical, I have three, okay? (laughs) And we'll work through these very quickly. Arrogance is the antithesis of Christian love. Amen? Okay, good. Don't even need to talk about that. God expects us to put our rightness to work for one another. And finally, no one can go to Jesus for you. John 8. Verse 1, 
The earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of John do not include uh, the last verse of chapter 7 or the first 11 verses of chapter 8. I have decided years ago I don't care. It either belongs in Luke or it belongs in a different spot in John. It's biblical. There's nothing inconsistent with the character and heart and mission of Christ in these verses. Right? So when you see the brackets in your Bible, that's why they're there. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So the self-satisfied, hands on the hips, head wagging posture of the scribes and Pharisees, listen, that posture is precisely what we look like when we see hear or discover another human being has been caught in sin and we think we are better than them as a result. It's exactly what we look like. Discernment is a spiritual gift, but it cannot possibly look like what so many of us think that it does. Does anybody know, by show of hands, off the top of your head without looking, what Romans 3.23 says. Just throw your hands up. Thank you. I'm not going to call on you. All right, Roy, just, just kidding. Yeah, that's it. Who? Oh. So is discernment <laughs> caught Nicole sinning? No. It, we all know that already. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? All right, so... Why would we think it's an accomplishment to catch someone in sin? Because we want to, in time, in, in linear terms, we want to make ourselves look better. And if we can find someone who looks worse than us, well, then mission accomplished. That's why we like catching other people in sin. Now, 526... And then three and four of six are bookends. What is going on in the heart of these verses? Look at them. Back in Galatians 6. 5.26. And then look at 6, 3, and 4. Conceit, provocation, envy, self-deception, and boasting. These are all features of what? Pride. Yeah. Let's go through them again. Conceit, provoking, envy, 
self-deception, and boasting. All features of pride. And how often do we park these activities of the heart under the banner of discernment? You'll be like, never, what? I don't do that. Okay, let me tell you everything that's wrong with my coworkers. I bet you've done that, right? At least, come on, we can, it's okay. We can be honest with each other here. Let me tell you everything's wrong with my kid's spouse. Well, in my parents' case, it'd be my, my kid. Um, if I tell you everything that's wrong with someone else, now you'll know that I'm right. Doesn't that, that makes sense. Yeah, you'll know I'm right. Who was the most right human being in history? Okay, that was good. In the story of the woman caught in adultery, where, conveniently, my favorite part of the story, only the woman who was caught in the act of adultery is brought to Jesus in shame. What does the most right person in history do? Uh, Let's look at Luke 10, 25. Luke 10, 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we've covered two points already. Arrogance is the antithesis of Christian love. If Jesus, who was the most right person in human history, doesn't chuck a rock at the woman caught in adultery, what business do any of us have doing so? If Jesus doesn't throw a rock, guess what I'm not doing? If the judge of all the world doesn't throw a rock, guess what I'm not doing? Throwing a rock. Because I'm not going to be like, well, I think he just missed this one. He didn't spot the issue here that this person needs to be stoned for. Humility happens when, I hope you agree with this, because I think it's actually quite profound now that I'm reading it in my notes. (laughs) 
Humility happens when we recognize that the only difference between us and the woman is that she got caught. So I've illustrated this before. You ever been pulled over when you weren't doing anything wrong? I have. And boy, was my indignation brought under restraint by considerations of all the times I've done things wrong and not been pulled over. It kind of like it balances out. When you're looking at somebody else and they've been caught and they're in sin and you can tell just how evil what's going on in their heart or was going on in their heart really is, the next thing you think should be if you're a Christian Whew. Boy, am I glad God has been pleased not to lay out all my sins where everybody can see them. That's where humility is cultivated. Christian love seeks to restore the woman, not kill her. Right? Now, there's a cautionary element, too. This is like a sub point, if you will, that Paul throws in at no extra charge. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression except for the really gross ones that you really don't like. No, that's not what it says. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too are tempted. So here's the sub point. You may not be the right person to counsel the woman caught in adultery. Like if you've got a hankering to do some drugs... Maybe sponsoring the newest member of AA is not for you. Amen. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to get tangled up in their sin. Oh, come on. This is not revolutionary. You guys <laughs> understand what I'm saying, right? Okay. Even if you're too wise about your own weaknesses to engage closely with a sinner caught up in sin, the point holds. Your objective is their restoration, not their destruction. Two. That was one. Arrogance is the antithesis of Christian love. Two. God expects us to put our rightness to work for one another. Now, I'm going to press a little bit harder on your conscience, and please understand that this almost destroyed me this week. I told Lisa Friday night, I'm like, I don't know if I can preach this sermon on Sunday, which sounds very, you know, whatever. I, that's not me fishing for uh, sympathy from you. This is me trying to say, believe me when I say, uh, I, have, I have been shining the light of this point on my own heart this week, and I'm not pleased with what I found there in my own heart. This point, God expects us to put our rightness to work for one another must be applied to your enemy. Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies means, if my definition of love stands, and I think it does, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense, right? So love is the best of me serving you. And the directive is love your enemies, which means I've got to engage in acts of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do my enemy good at my own expense. 
Is that not the directive? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Relationship again. You are sons and daughters. You were bought with a price, so act like it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I mean, it's easy enough to restore your own kid, your best friend, your favorite person when they fall, right? Hey, you want to, you like them. Yes. Well, what about the person who lied about you, took credit for your work, abused you, cheated? What about that person? What is in your heart toward them when they finally end up on the ash heap of their bad decisions? Because my heart, generally speaking, is good. Serves them right. My heart is generally speaking, I like the part where showing kindness is heaping burning coals on their head. Like, that's the part I like. I hope these are hot. Which I don't think is really the, 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 the tone that Jesus is using there. If it serves them right to suffer the consequences of their sin. Why do you deserve mercy from God? Bearing one another's burdens, I think, looks like the Samaritan who saw his enemy and had compassion, bound up his wounds and poured oil and disinfectant over them and put his enemy on a horse and walked his enemy to an inn and paid for an extended stay so his enemy could recover. I think... Bearing one another's burdens is less about saying you'll pray for a brother or sister at church when they're struggling and more about demonstrating a heart of charity towards someone who doesn't deserve it. Let me say that again. I think bearing one another's burdens is less about saying you'll pray for a brother or sister who is in distress. It's less about that. Bearing one another's burdens has more to do with demonstrating a heart of charity towards someone who doesn't deserve it. God wants us to use our rightness. So to whatever degree you're right, wherever you are on the right thermometer, right? To that degree, you should be using your correctness in service to others. Jesus was the most right, and he didn't throw a stone. Now, some people don't want to be restored, right? I'm not going to lay a boulder on your back and tell you you've, you've finished doing good work when they've been restored. No, no. And there are verses in Scripture that say things like reject a factious man after one or two reproofs. So, yeah, I'm, absolutely, there's a biblical reason to withdraw on some level at some point, but I'm guessing it's not as soon as we all would like it to be. (laughs) This brings us to the last point, which is no one can go to Jesus for you. Galatians 6, 5, 
each one will have to bear his own load. Well, if you, I mean, come on. If you hear this sermon and it stings, welcome to the club. If you've heard this sermon and it doesn't sting, you're probably not converted, right? It's just not a problem for you. You, you don't struggle with this. Your conscience is close to being seared because the rest of us who contend with these two realities at the same time all the time, I am washed, forgiven, loved, and the future is sure for me because I'm in Christ and I hate people. These two things exist in my heart at the same time. Well, that's a lot of, of disjointed compartmentalizing that has to go on to the point where you end up in psychotherapy on meds. Or you'd better take this part of you that hates people and deal with it. And I can't go to Jesus for you. You have to do it. You got to take that hatred that you have in your heart for that person who, like you, is a sinner who is going to endure the wrath of God for eternity unless they come to their senses by his grace. You've got to take that hatred that you have for them to the foot of the cross and deal with it. Bear your own burden. I can't do it for you. I can't do it for my kids. I can't do it for my wife. I can't do it for my best friend. I can't do it for anybody. But the invitation from Christ is this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, mine's heavy, so it must not be his that I'm carrying. And what do I need to do with that load? Take it to Jesus. Now, what that means is you have to drag your flesh kicking and screaming with all of its passions and desires dragging behind into the presence of Jesus Christ and there deal with your sin. Confession and repentance and faith. That's what has to be happening. Or you are not going to be able to love a brother or a sister, let alone an enemy but nobody else can do it for you. So as you sit here right now today, however long it's been since you've been in the presence of God, maybe you've never been there, by faith, in prayer, ain't nobody gonna do it for you because we can't. You have to do it. You have to gather up all of your leftovers and take them to Jesus and pour them out and get them dealt with. And the promise is where there is confession and repentance. There is mercy aplenty. Amen? Amen.